Welcome to the second episode of the Hometown Podcast, the show where we look at where people are from and where they've lived and ask, how does this influence who they are and how they think about the world? I'm your host, Tola Martz. Two weeks ago, I put out a call looking for people who've spent their whole lives in more or less the same place. I think I said within 30 miles of where they were born or thereabouts. And I got a great response from an unlikely place. First of all, it was someone from Seattle. Seattle is notorious as a city of transplants. Most people have only been here a decade or two, having arrived from Amazon or Costco, or in my case, Blue Origin. And an old timer, someone who's been here for maybe 30 years. But the friend who offered to be on the podcast has lived in Seattle for over 50 years. And it wasn't just any Seattleite either, but rather King County Executive Dow Constantine, the elected official who heads up the executive branch of King County, the county that includes Seattle. And to understand why this is a big deal, you have to understand that King County is the 16th largest municipality in the United States. King County is big in every sense of the word, running from Puget Sound to Snoqualmie Pass, incorporating everything from urban dense Seattle to bucolic corporate campuses in Bellevue and Redmond to farmlands around Carnation and Enumclaw and exurbs full of pediatricians and engineers in places like Issaquah and Sammamish. There are 2.2 million people in King County, and every single one of them has an opinion about how local government should work. And I've seen county meetings where I'm pretty sure all 2.2 million people were in attendance. Dow's been county executive for almost 12 years. Before that, he was on the county council, and before that, he was a state legislator. He was kind enough to join me on a call the other night to talk about growing up and staying in Seattle. One last thing to set the stage. You should know that his neighborhood of West Seattle is in some ways quite distinct from the rest of the city. A hilly promontory separated from the rest of the city by the Port of Seattle docks, the Duwamish River, and Boeing Field Airport. And now to the interview. Dow Constantine, welcome to the Hometown Podcast. Thanks, Tola. How are you doing? I'm well. Thank you for agreeing to be on. Uh, I'm really excited to talk to an actual native Seattleite. Rumor was that they didn't exist. Uh, but you've lived your whole life in West Seattle. Yeah, you know, and it is interesting. I mean, the use of the term native is a little fraught now. I'm not native. I am, uh, Sorry. you know, from elsewhere. In this case, uh, my family came out from Arkansas and Missouri about 120 years ago. But uh, I am uh, very much a West Seattleite and, in fact, haven't moved much from this spot in the last uh, 60 years. So what was West Seattle like when you were growing up? How was it different from anywhere else in Seattle? Well, I think it was it was pretty pretty blue collar, it was pretty working class and it was sort of sort of your greeting coming into West Seattle was the steel plant and the and the uh shipyards and uh with of course Boeing uh all around and I think my mom and she said this before chose it cuz uh it reminded her of her hometown of Everett Milltown. Uh, my grandfather and his father worked in the mills in Everett as saw filers. And uh, when my mom got out of college, uh, she decided that she was going to stay in, you know, cosmopolitan Seattle, but not too cosmopolitan. So she came over to West Seattle. And, and uh, it it has changed a ton in that time. But, you know, everybody, for the most part, worked at Boeing or Boeing's, as they call it around here. Uh, or at the steel mill, or on the docks, or in one of the many uh, industrial businesses in the Duwamish Valley. My folks are both teachers, but 
you know, the, the, if you're running into a doctor or a lawyer, it was an unusual uh, thing. It was mostly uh, people who, who uh, worked with their hands for a living. So I want to talk about a couple of ways that Seattle changed. First up, a lot has been made about Microsoft and what it meant to the area. How do you think Seattle changed as a result of Microsoft and how did it not? And how did it compare to the later arrival of uh, Amazon or Starbucks? Well, you know, Microsoft, uh, yeah, Microsoft's growth, I mean, nobody noticed its arrival, but, uh, you know, as it really started to take off and, uh, and draw people from around the country, uh, there, there was a lot of perplexity, obviously, but also resentment. You remember, uh, or folks will remember, a lot of people moving up from California, selling their uh, expensive houses, coming here to to work, particularly in software. And I think there was a lot of folks from Silicon Valley, uh, which was not in its infancy then, it was in its sort of adolescence. But uh, but Microsoft was a place you could go that was big and successful and in another location. Uh, around here, everybody had those bumper stickers that said, don't Californicate Washington. <laughs> and that was really the, 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 the um, growth of Microsoft and, and all the all the businesses surrounding Microsoft, bringing people from elsewhere uh, to to this you know new frontier, uh, which has happened here over and over and over again over the course of uh, 170 years. Sure, I had heard that the area was pretty uh, blue collar in the early days, and my in-laws lived in Eastern Washington in the 70s, and they said that Seattle at the time was sort of more like a Cleveland or a Detroit than 100%. it was this sort of modern yeah. concept. Yeah, I mean, that was what Seattle was. Seattle was like a blue-collar, working-class, dirt-under-your-fingernails city uh, when I was growing up here. You know, it has it, it changed so radically. Uh, and really just, you know, even when I, when I graduated from high school, which seems like it shouldn't have been so long ago, but was 40-some years ago now. Familiar with the concept, yeah, yes. Uh, it, it is just unrecognizable in many ways, uh, and and I think you know more than the just the money. It's it's the perspective people have has changed quite a bit. Um, there was a, a real. I, I appreciated the folks I grew up with. They um, were sort of uncomplaining, had kind of a can-do attitude. You know, a little rough around the edges sometimes, but uh, really good, solid people. And and you know, obviously there are plenty of good, solid people here. But a lot of those good, solid people have gotten squeezed out by the run-up in housing prices and the cost of living, mm -hmm. which affects us to this day. Yep. Um, the other big change that I want to ask you about is grunge. So <laughs> I remember where I remember exactly where I was when I first heard Nirvana "Smells Like Teen Spirit." I wow. was on. Fourth uh, Avenue in Dinky Town in the Twin Cities, and I thought hair metal is dead. Mm -hmm. So, what was it like to be here at that time? I mean, it was a pretty heady time. I had I had been, you know, um, I worked at the college radio station at KCMU, which is now KEXP. When I was in school, when in eighty one, eighty two, eighty three, eighty four. That's where I met my wife, uh, who was the music director, which means oh, that, that you, you're the person who is deemed to have the best taste, pretty much. Uh, but they let me on the air anyway. And uh, and it, it was all bubbling up then, like the, the roots of what became that moment were happening and you could feel it in town. There was so much excitement. There was 
there were there was metal that was happening there were there was power pop there were bar bands there was there was you know art rock there was all sorts of stuff going on and these strands started to kind of weave together and and cross pollinate and you know grunge really started with a bunch of guys who were um somewhat seriously somewhat tongue-in-cheek doing metal and then punk of course and all these things kept kind of morphing into each other and nirvana were just those guys who hung out with the melvins right <laughs> i mean they, they were guys at parties uh, i i didn't realize that they were going to become nobody did the the big thing and i had my experience was i had a um, cassette that my wife had gotten from uh, Jack and Dino uh, and his wife at the time, Don Anderson, which was a recording of what became Bleach. And I was listening to it in my car as I was driving to my, my job downtown. And I had not been paying much attention. And I, I, I was coming around a corner in the university district and about a girl was playing. And it suddenly, you know, a moment of clarity. It's like, oh, my God, this is good. Those guys who hang around with the Melvins are an actual band and they're good. And, you know, it was a few years before the whole thing exploded. But uh, it was a really exciting time. And um, I know I'm going on about the answer to this question. But the th thing that worries me um, is the same thing we we're talking about, uh, you know, earlier about property values. Uh, a vibrant music scene, a vibrant creative scene depends on artists being able to live and work close together with one another in a, in a dynamic environment. You can't do that all isolated and spread apart. And, and it used to be that this place was full of, you know, garages and basements and, and empty storefronts and, and places where you could get in there and hack away and nobody really cared. That's all gone. You know, uh -huh. uh, most of the real estate is too expensive for people to waste it on uh, on, you know, uh, people mucking around, not being able to play their guitars. And that's a problem. And we have to be really purposeful, intentional if we want to foster the next generation of artists, visual artists, performing artists here in our region. Sure. And I remember when I got here in 2003, like the Ballard bar scene and music scene there was really strong. And what I'm hearing is that in recent years, it's becoming harder and harder for Ballard uh, music scene places to, to make a living. Yeah, you know, it's the, the rents get too high. Um, the funky club or the bar with a kind of uh, uh, makeshift stage gets squeezed out by the uh, high-priced cocktail joint or the expensive restaurant. And those things are lovely as well. But you lose the opportunity. And, and, you know, some people are holding on. They're figuring, figuring out how to make it work. The, speaking of Ballard, the, the tractor, um, you know, uh, continues to thrive. But like Dan Cowan was my boss when I attended bar at Cooper's Ale House up on Lake City Way. And he somehow managed to make a four-decade career out of this thing. Uh, nice. God love him. But uh, I, I really think that there's uh, a need for us to to make sure that it's not just residential space, it's artist space, it's studio space, it's performance space, it's, it's places for stuff that the market just doesn't justify, but the soul of our community needs. 
So let me ask you about when you were a DJ at KCMU. Uh, what kind of stuff did you like playing? Was it like Eagles, Fleetwood Mac, no. or Elvis Costello, Talking yeah. Heads, you or been, Fear you and been, Black Flag? You would have been run out of the station if you played the Eagles or Fleetwood Mac. It was an interesting <laughs> transition time uh, because the... Uh, the, the station had just barely survived and was limping along. And I came in there after a, a scare that was going to go off the air and was doing fundraising. And then they made a mistake and put me on the air uh, at two in the morning, by the way, to start with. But uh, <laughs> but it was it was a, a punk rock station. It was, you know, what was called by uh, writers New Wave Station. Um, you could get away with playing like a cool old Beatles song from like Rubber Soul, but you couldn't get away with uh, playing prog rock for sure. Uh, and uh, and so, yeah, we played, I, I played a lot of Elvis Costello, yes. I played uh, a lot of uh, uh, what was in the heavy rotation for alternative at the time, like REM, uh, sure. right? Uh, the Minneapolis scene began to happen then. Replacements and Husker and, Du. And like, you know, Replacements and Husker Du are two of my favorite all-time bands, right? Uh, but there was the Athens scene, there was the Minneapolis scene, and we were all excited about these scenes. And all of a sudden, Seattle happened, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know. Uh, and all of those things were kind of centered around college radio. It was a real phenomenon back then. So I got to see Bob Mould from Husker Du, both in Minneapolis and here in Seattle. Yeah, cool. That's very cool. I, I, a lot of fun. I've seen Husker Du, and I've seen Bob play uh, many times. And uh, but for the fact that we now have a, a young daughter, we'd probably still be going to a couple shows a month uh, and COVID, of course. We'd be going to a couple shows a month, but we'll be back at it soon enough. Well, I took our daughter to her first show when she was, I think, four years old. Mm -hmm. We got special permission from a place in the Twin Cities. And she came along to see an artist that she really liked. And it was a, it was a wonderful moment for us. Well, that's great. Uh, my daughter has seen Billy Bragg perform. Uh, oh, great. Yeah. Uh, she uh, saw uh, Morrissey in utero, but we were going to try to allow her to forget that. And, uh, <laughs> and we were this close to taking her to see the replacements uh, at Memorial Stadium. And, you know, she wouldn't have been old enough to appreciate it because she, she could have said her dad took her to see them. I ended up on the stage uh, backstage, ah. it was just nuts. And there's actually video uh, hiding on YouTube of me bouncing up and down uh, uh, like a total goofball. So excited to see my heroes play uh, after all those years. Very cool. Hey, let me ask you about college. Uh, was staying in the area a conscious decision? I mean, did your friends go far away? How'd that work for you dynamically? You know, I mean, it's kind of consistent with my personality, but also my mom uh, only half jokingly said uh, they would pay my tuition and books. And I could go to any college I wanted as long as it was the University of Washington. Uh, but <laughs> uh, but, you know, really, I have been in love with the University of Washington since I was a toddler. Grandfather came down from Everett High School uh, to play for his high school coach, Coach Bagshaw, when he came to coach the Washington team and grandfather showed up in 1919. And his kid brother came down after him. Uh, my grandpa was Abe Wilson. His brother was George Wilson. He was the first consensus All-American at Washington. And then they wow. both together went on to play pro ball and they actually won the 1928 NFL championship. Uh, but there, uh, you know, started my love affair with the University of Washington. And I think Bow Down to Washington was darn near the second song I learned to sing after uh, Happy Birthday. So 
you know, it was really inevitable I was going to go there. Uh, and uh, I don't regret it at all. I, I, I think that a lot of what's happened in my life is a result of not just the education I got there, but the people I met and the places I, I became familiar with. And, and I wouldn't trade it for anything. Sure. And as you said, you met your wife while you were there. Yeah. And, you know, she does sometimes regret it. She was accepted at Stanford, but decided to stay close to home. She went to Lakes down there in Pierce County. Uh, and of course, she regrets having met me. But besides that, uh, she, she uh, you know, thinks, God, I could have gone to Stanford. I could have done all this stuff. But, uh, you know, uh, dutiful children uh, stay close to home to take care of mom and dad. And, uh, sure. you know, that... That is uh, uh, a real advantage of living here is you have a place like the University of Washington and so many other assets. It's not like you have to run away from here. Uh, sure. there's, there's, there's plenty to keep you occupied for a lifetime. And you went there for law school as well. I did, uh, pretty much straight on. I mean, I wasn't ready to go out into the big mean world and uh, law school seemed like an obvious choice uh, after my undergrad, which was you know, sort of nominally political science, but it was pretty much just like uh, arts and sciences. And then, uh, and then while I was in law school, I uh, enrolled in a master's program in urban planning uh, to get a little more perspective because uh, law school can be a little mm, intense, <laughs> sure. limiting. <laughs> so, uh, so I did both of those and uh, it turned out to be a pretty good deal. And then after law school, was building your career here also a conscious decision? Yeah, I mean, I, I clerked in a firm, a plaintiff PI firm downtown, personal injury firm uh, in the Columbia Center. Uh, and that was a really interesting experience. Worked in their business department for part of it, learned to do a lot of real estate transactions and so forth. And uh, I never really considered leaving. Uh, I didn't have clear in mind that I was going to drop the practice of law and end up going into politics at that point. But uh, I really had no intention of going anywhere. My mom uh, always said, consistent with the previous story, that, you know, uh, uh, she'd be happy whoever I married as long as they either lived here or were an orphan. And was, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that's, you know, fair enough. Um, what, did you, what did you decide you wanted to get involved in community leadership? Depends on who you ask. I mean, if you ask my mom, this goes way, way, way back. Uh, to me, uh, I took an internship in Olympia uh, when I was in a senior in college uh, with our state senator from, from here in the West Seattle, Phil Talmadge. And that got me really interested in Olympia and the legislature. And, and then I worked on his campaign for attorney general, which didn't turn out in the end, but it was uh, my introduction to campaigning. And so that, that part of it is, is a pretty clear path. I did actually run for and win the office of student body president at West Seattle High School, even though I'd never been involved in student government. It was one of those kind of like last hour of filing uh wow. weird you know take a flying leap decisions but um you got to do that sometimes you know every once in sure. a while you got to abandon rational thought and just try something and um and then uh you know while i was in law school this little wooded ravine here in west seattle that we used to ride our bikes through and play in these kids one of those mutt boards went up and they were going to mow down all the trees and build you know 18 houses and blah 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 and uh, I got real upset and a lot of the neighbors were upset and we formed a little friends of group and a funny guy I met who lived up the block named Charlie Chong uh, had been a community organizer back in the upper Midwest and 
he uh, got us really organized and taught us how to lobby the city council and lobby the county council and 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 get active with the activists, as they say. And and we won. We saved the ravine. We bought it piece by piece and mapped it as part of the Duwamish Head Greenbelt, and it's there today. Uh, and every once in a while, we have a crew that goes in and helps restore it. But that 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 really got me going. And after that, um, took over as the uh, a member of and then chair of the 34th District Democrats. And you know, it's it just kind of sneaks up on you. Uh, I didn't wake up one day and go, you know, I don't want to be a comfortable lawyer. I think I want to go into politics instead, where people can attack me on a daily basis. That seems like a good choice. Uh, but. Uh, but it just happened. Got it. And how has West Seattle changed while you've lived there? It's funny because all the same houses are here. I mean, there have been new houses constructed. You know, it's mostly the same physical layout, but all the houses have been spiffed up and they've all got more expensive cars than the one I can afford in the driveway. It's just, you know, our block is full of uh, Amazonians and Microsofties and people who don't have any visible means of support, but somehow uh, seem to have plenty of money. And, you know, and, and it's just weird. <laughs> you know? And a lot of my high school classmates have just gotten sort of pushed out and I had to fight and claw my way back to get here across the street from my parents into a house our real estate agent told us not to buy because it was too beat up and would be too much work. I was like, dude, it's in the right neighborhood. And that's the only thing I can afford. So I'm willing to deal with that. Sure. You know, 20 years later, I still haven't. So there you go. <laughs> you know, uh, I used to work for Blue Origin. And there's actually a Blue Origin connection to West Seattle. Mm. Because Blue Origin started out in Soto on South Nevada, right near the Duwamish. And uh, yeah. so a bunch of the Blue Origin folks actually live in West Seattle. Oh, a number wow. of my good friends live in West Seattle. And they love it. Yeah, it's a it's a cool neighborhood still. I mean, it's really, you know, it's even more isolated than ever now. But uh, it is uh, it it still feels like its own, you know, small to medium sized town. And you still see the same people all the time. And there is a certain sense of of uh, neighborliness. And, you, you know, I got to say the coronavirus was a terrible thing, has been a terrible thing. But it worked wonders in terms of creating community. I mean, our neighborhood, when I was growing up here on this block, everybody knew each other. And it was one of those where all the kids just kind of ran through other people's houses and nobody locked the doors or knew any better. And then somebody, you know, go out and yell and you go in for dinner. And that had all been gone. Nobody knew each other. You pull in your driveway, you go in your house at night. All of a sudden, everyone's friends. Everyone knows mm -hmm. each other. Everyone's kind of hanging out in the street. And I think it's been remarkable. I just got to figure out how we can continue to foster that. And I know for a fact that has been happening all over our region and probably all over the country uh, during this crisis. So, um, you know, you're reminded of what you've, you've lost with the sort of increasing isolation uh, mm -hmm. and, and insularity. And I hope we can we can foster a little bit of this feeling once we all get our shots. I think there's also been a sense of, uh, I don't know the right word for it, but collaboration or compassion 
I don't know about at the county level, but in the city of Issaquah, you know, we're all nicer to each other. And on the city council and our relationship with our mayor, you know, everybody just takes a step back from the edge and really works uh, to collaborate a little bit more than we did before COVID. And, you're, and you have the right point. How do you carry that forward after we've all had our shots? Yeah, uh, and, and I'm glad to hear you're having that experience. Uh, I'm certainly having that experience here in our neighborhood. I would say less so sort of politically <laughs> in general. Well. Uh, people are more on edge than ever, but, uh, but you know, we gotta do better uh, as a community, as a society. We have to do better. We have to recapture some of that sense that we are all in this together and that we've got each other's backs and that uh, we don't have to continually define ourselves by our differences. So I know you're a very busy guy. I have one more sort of big question for you, which is how do you feel living here your whole life has influenced you, um, both for the good and maybe any downsides? That's a, it is an interesting question. Um, some really obvious things. I have a pretty strong environmental ethic. I grew up, I'm a, a Boy Scout, an Eagle Scout. I grew up in these woods and in that sound. And I, I really, you know, deep in my heart, that's what matters the most to me is, is stewarding and preserving, restoring um, these places. And, uh, you know, I might not have gotten that in some other locations growing up. I do think that, um, you know, people talk about the Seattle freeze, but there's a certain diffidence about this place. It's kind of unlovely. Uh, it's just part of the part of the regional character. I don't I'm not enough of a sociologist or a historian to know um, where it came from. But I bet somebody could write their doctoral dissertation on it. Uh, and I, I think that, you know, I might have been a more uh, outgoing, effusive person had I been raised in a place that was a little louder and uh, a little less uh, sort of sort of taciturn, um, and I I do think that that um, in general though uh, the the thing that helped us get through the coronavirus crisis with the fewest infections and the fewest deaths of any major metropolitan region is is a regional characteristic or 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 character trait that is a very positive one, and I think it has a lot to do with the fact that I chose the reason that I chose public service, and that is this sense of community, this, this communitarianism, this sense of mutual responsibility, this, this idea that you do have of duty, uh, a sense of duty. And that is something, I don't think that was just an individual or family thing. I think there was a lot of that when I was growing up here. Uh, you just had a responsibility to, to, to your neighbors. You wouldn't say the collective because that would sound socialistic, but you had a responsibility <laughs> to your neighbors. Uh, sure. and, and I think that was really strong here. And, you know, things change. Lots of people move in from other places with other ideas. Uh, but I, I think that to some extent persists. And um, I think it's going to stand us in, 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 in good stead moving forward. Well, I think that aspect of Seattle, both the quote unquote Seattle freeze and that collective responsibility really uh, relates to Minneapolis as well. And I think some of it may come from the same origins. You know, there is that Scandinavian influence. Yeah. And Minneapolis is a place where nobody ever wants to hurt your feelings. So if they say, hey, you know, do you want to come over sometime? You go, oh, yeah, sure. But then it turns out you never do. That is Seattle, hundred percent. So, and I, I do agree. I think that that this a lot of the regional character here, 
you know, when you dig down, it was more evident when I was younger was, is, is Asian and Scandinavian, right? Mm-hmm. And, and this neighborhood, you know, was redlined and there were very few black families in West Seattle when I was growing up. But there, were, there were a lot of old line Japanese and Chinese families. Um, I went at Schmitz Park Elementary School, for example, when I went to school. Uh, it it d- didn't seem like anything at the time, but when I look back, I, I see these pictures, and, and it, it just strikes you how how odd the the racial demographics are, and how there there are so few African Americans and Latinos, and so many Asian kids relative to the total population of the city. But I think those cultural influences are pronounced here, and you can still uh, find them. Uh, in the regional character and, of course, in the in the physical character of the city. Well, I've saved my uh, most difficult question for last. What's the best restaurant in West Seattle? <laughs> that is a difficult question because I know so many of these folks and they're going to be offended. Um, but uh, I think, you know, if I was going to order right now, uh, I think uh, Buddha Ruksa, which is a Thai restaurant, it's uh, on just off of Fauntleroy, uh, right at the top of uh, what was and will again be the West Seattle Bridge. Uh, mm-hmm. and, knock on wood, knock on wood. Yeah, but it's it's a really lovely Thai restaurant. They do a great job, and uh, you got to get your order in early because they're uh, wildly popular. Well, I will have to give it a try because Noodle Boat in Issaquah is actually our number one Zagat-rated restaurant. And it's a Thai restaurant run by a wonderful Thai family. Wonderful. So I'll have to go well, there. Uh, next time I'm in Issaquah, I will, uh, I will take you up on that. Well, Dal, it was so great having you on the podcast. Uh, thank you for your ongoing public service. And good luck with all the new and ongoing county projects this year. Come visit us in West Seattle if they ever get the bridge fixed. Well, I also love uh, Pecos Pit, oh, which yeah. now has a, yeah. a evening and weekend location in West Seattle. Yeah, the Kingans bought the, the franchise rights to the original Pecos Pit. And so they're opening those restaurants all over. And that one right at the top of where the West Seattle Bridge used to be and will again be uh, is also wildly popular. And it's just the place I'm talking about is right across the street from there and up about 100 feet. So you can't miss it. All right, I'll give it a shot. Thank you again so much. It was really great. And uh, good luck with all things county related. See you later. Thanks again to our guest, King County Executive Dow Constantine. It was a great interviewee. And it's nice to know that if he ever decides to step down from elected office, he can go back to DJ at KEXP. Because REM, Talking Heads, The Replacements, and Husker Du never go out of style. I'm Tola Martz. Our theme music is written by Guy Ellis. You can find out more about all of the above at the Hometown Podcast homepage on Buzzsprout. The Hometown Podcast will return for Episode 3 soon.